You're listening to The Drag. It's the spring semester at Texas Southmost College in Brownsville. Dr. Tony Zavaleta is teaching his Intro to Sociology class, like he does every semester. It's a big class with well over 100 students. It was not any different from any other Intro to Sociology large class in a, in a large classroom that I, that I had taught. But one student sticks out. She and her two sidekicks always sat in the very back row. And of course, I wasn't happy about that. Uh, and I would urge people in the back row to move up, but there were so many students in that class that it just was not possible. But that's not the only reason. She was a rather tall, you know, as far as Hispanic women go, who are generally short, I know that's a stereotype, but it's true. Uh, she was tall, a tall woman, and looked different. She was different, so she stood out. Her name is Sara Adrete. Sara Adrete was someone who was known on campus. She was known. She was uh, a gym rat. She was in, we had some very significant uh, women's volleyball teams, national champion volleyball teams at Texas Southmost College in the 80s. And she was kind of like a, I don't know exactly what her position was, but we'll say that she was kind of a, a mascot. She hung around with them. She's also blonde. And the thing about the Rio Grande Valley and Brownsville, a majority Hispanic part of Texas, is that tall and blonde is not a combo you see a lot down here. And Sara always shows up to class wearing these strange, dark red beaded necklaces, which make her stand out even more. Okay, so she was wearing beads, different colored Santeria beads. And that, that was very unusual for South Texas. In fact, I don't think I had ever seen it before. The Santeria beads catch Zavaleta's eye because, coincidentally, he's an expert on the religion. Folk medicine, curanderismo, santeria, and so forth. Santeria is an Afro-Caribbean religion that originated in Cuba as a result of slavery. It's sort of a fusion of Catholicism and a religion from the Yoruba people in West Africa. Santeria is popular in Mexico, the country just across the border from Brownsville, but it's practiced all over the world. And in March 1989, Zavaleta's just returned from traveling around the world studying Santeria. I traveled to Miami a couple of times to study the, the botanicas. I, I traveled to Puerto Rico. I traveled to Los Angeles. I traveled to Chicago. I traveled to San Antonio. I mean, I was all over the Mexico City, especially Mexico City. So he's been spending a lot of time thinking about and experiencing Santeria. And now all of a sudden I'm seeing evidence of Santeria, like Sara Aldrete wearing Santero beads, which is very unusual. Zavaleta doesn't ask Sara about it because he didn't want to intrude on his students' personal religious beliefs. I just, I made note of it. Uh, and I felt it was unusual. It was, str it was strange on that particular day. Zavaleta says Sara was a good student with a bright future ahead and a lot of friends, including Serafine and Elio Hernandez. They're all in Zavaleta's sociology class together. Serafine is 
pretty quiet. He's a small guy with a baby face. He's studying criminal justice at Texas Southmost College in Brownsville. He's originally from Houston, Texas, but ended up moving to Brownsville after high school to pursue a higher education. And he's always at Sada's side. Like many college students, he and Sada would cross the border into Matamoros, just across the border from Brownsville. They both go visit their families, and they meet up with their group of friends at Sarafin's family's ranch outside of Matamoros, Rancho Santa Elena. On April 10th, in the spring of 1989, Serafin's driving down the country roads in the rural area around Rancho Santa Elena. It's not common to see cars on the roads. It's pretty quiet around here, mostly farmlands. And it's certainly not common to see a bright red pickup truck like Serafin's speeding down the dirt roads. Serafin notices a police roadblock up ahead, but he doesn't slow down. In fact, he blows right through the roadblock, like the police aren't even there. He's not really phased or even scared by what he just did because he thinks the police can't see him, literally. You see, Serafin's family ranch, Rancho Santa Elena, is the home of a pretty huge illegal marijuana operation. It's also the headquarters of a cult. A cult that's responsible for the ritual murder and sacrifice of at least a dozen people. I'm Jackie Ibarra, and this is Season 3 of Darkness. This is Episode 2. Mark Herroy, the 21-year-old University of Texas student who crossed the border into Matamoros with his friends during spring break, has been missing in Mexico for more than 24 hours. And the search has turned into an international one. In the coming days, folks from both sides of the border, from Matamoros in Mexico and Brownsville in Texas, will come together to search for Mark. To understand what this would have been like at the time, you have to understand a little bit more about Brownsville and Matamoros. Although Brownsville is the largest city in the Rio Grande Valley, it still manages to have a small town feel to it. This mostly Hispanic community is pretty tight-knit. It's the kind of place where everyone seems to know everyone, and everyone knows the chisme, or gossip. Last episode, I told you how common it is for people to cross the border between Brownsville and Matamoros. But the two cities aren't just neighbors. They're actually pretty good friends. There's even a week-long festival held every February that celebrates that friendship and camaraderie between Brownsville and Matamoros. It's called Charo Days, and it's filled with music, food, and a parade that starts at the heart of Brownsville and ends in downtown Matamoros, signifying that the border isn't a barrier between the two countries. And because of Brownsville's proximity to Mexico, bicultural experiences are huge here. You'll definitely hear a lot of Spanglish, which is the mingling of English and Spanish. You'll see advertisements in both languages, and many of the restaurants in Brownsville serve some of the most authentic Mexican food you can get outside of Mexico itself. But another big thing about people in Brownsville is their faith. Many of Brownsville's residents are Christian, and there are a lot of churches here. And I spent 23 years in Brownsville. Brownsville is a 
is very simple people. Is a people a lot of faith, verdad? Or say the churches in Brazil always are full. That's Monsignor Juan Nicolau. He's been a priest in Brownsville for years, mostly at St. Luke's Catholic Church. He's 84 years old now, and even though he's technically retired, he still finds himself helping out with Mass and services at the Basilica of Our Lady San Juan del Valle. Monsignor Nicolau is a pretty big deal around here. He's been a pretty familiar face in the Brownsville community for a while, and not just within the walls of the church. He's been recognized by the Pope. That's his title, Monsignor, which refers to a priest that's been honored for exceptional service to his church or diocese. At that time, I had a program on TV and radio that the TV program lasted for 30 years, every Sunday, every Sunday, and play radio. And also, I used to have an article on the newspapers in the Valley every Sunday, in English and Spanish. This is for 30 years. He even has 5,000 friends on Facebook. That shows just how connected he is to the community of Brownsville. Monsignor Nicolau is kind of a rock star around the community, and people tend to look to him for guidance and answers, especially in times of crisis. So when he heard Mark Kilroy had disappeared in Matamoros in March 1989, he knew he and his church had to help in the search for Mark in any way that they could. Uh, we had to help this man. We had to help this family. Verdad? Entonces, uh, we had to do whatever we can in order to, to help him. And that means coordinating a lot with the police as they begin their search for Mark. And coordinating with the community. They came only to know, to, to find out what happened. So they went to the church. And we started to pray. We formed a committee, the prayers. And, uh, but we thought it would be a matter of weeks. Verdad? No, one week, one week, one month. Mark wasn't from Brownsville, but this is the type of city that goes out of their way to help people, even if it's not someone the community necessarily knows. Monsignor Nicolau says that's because the community is so faithful and welcoming. We were involved in praying and committees to look to find out what happened. And we got together with the police, the police got together with me, and we got together the the the, the politicos, los politicos, los religiosos, los seglares, all kind of people were involved in this situation. It's Wednesday, March 13th, by the time news of Mark's disappearance makes it to Brownsville. Mark hasn't been seen since two days earlier. If you watched any crime TV show, you know that the first 48 hours after someone goes missing are vital to finding them alive. It's been more than 24 hours, but Mark's friends and family are holding out hope that he's okay. Mark's friends aren't partying on South Padre Island anymore. Instead, they're sitting at the Cameron County Sheriff's Department in front of an investigator ready to tell their story to a man who they hope can help them. My name is George Gavito. Uh, I was employed at the time of the Mark Kilroy case by the Cameron County Sheriff's Office. I was the chief investigator for Cameron County. George Gavito strikes an imposing figure. He's more than six feet tall, but his personality is even bigger. He's got a booming voice that bounces off the walls of his office. When he talks, you can't help but listen. 
When we interviewed him at his office in Brownsville in 2021, he wore a white button-down, freshly showered after a morning at the beach. Gavito's retired now, but he's busy. He runs a nonprofit that focuses on education and opportunity in Brownsville. The afternoon we interviewed him, he was fielding calls from folks who worked for him on his ranch. They'd been having problems with poachers. But in 1989, Gavito was the chief investigator for Cameron County, and he's the one who got the call when Mark Kilroy went missing. I was sitting in my office, and one of the secretaries came in and said that there was a couple of kids there that Brownsville PD had sent over. They had gone to Brownsville PD to report a missing person. And they said, well, it happened in Mexico. Why don't you go talk to George Gavito? And George Gavito takes all kinds of cases. So, and that's exactly what the guys told me when they got there. So, so they came in and they started telling me the story uh, that they had a buddy missing. I said, well, what happened? We were, we were in, in Mexico and uh, we started coming back and we crossed the bridge and we waited and waited and waited for him and he never came over, you know. Mark's friends were desperate by the time they connected with Gavito. We've been waiting for him for a day and a half, going on two days, and we talked to, their, to his dad and his dad said to come down and do a, a police report and, uh, and that's why we're here. And I said, well, to begin with, you know, we don't have uh, jurisdiction. He's right. His department doesn't have jurisdiction outside of the county, and certainly not outside of the country. All this, I said, look, I can't do much. This happened in Mexico. I can make some, a few phone calls to see if he's in jail or, you know, he got beat up in the hospital or something, but, you know, we really don't have any jurisdiction in, in Mexico. As he's talking to the boys about what happened, Gavito gets a call from a man named Oren Neck. He's a U.S. Customs agent in Brownsville. And he says, hey, uh, I just got a, a call from L.A. Uh, my, my, my compadre over there, his nephew is missing. And I said, well, hold on. He's missing from her. Well, he went to Matamoros. He was down Spring Break. Hold on. Is his name by any chance Mark something? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Mark Kilroy. How'd you know? Well, I got two kids here that, that uh, uh, were with him, his buddies. Where Gavito is a tall man with a big personality, Nack is more unassuming. He's serious and straight to the point. Like Gavito, Oranek is also a Valley native. So he knows the community, and especially the border, pretty well. And it's unusual for him to be involved in the search for Mark. Customs agents don't usually get involved with missing persons cases. But since his good friend, Ken Kilroy, caught him up, he wanted to help. Ken is Mark's uncle and godfather. He's a fellow customs agent based in Los Angeles, and when he got word that his godson was missing in Matamoros, he knew he had to call up Oren Neck. Oren Neck died in 2014, so we couldn't interview him for this podcast. But you'll hear his voice from old news clips throughout this podcast, and you'll hear Gavito talk about him a lot. Here's Gavito talking about when Oren called him about the case. He said, man, uh, we got to help this guy. I said, well, let me see what I can do. He says, man, I'll put some people with you to, to help your guys. You know, I'll send two or three guys over there, 
In fact, uh, let, let, me, let me send one over there right now and, and we can start looking at this. The law enforcement team begins to form. Right now, it's Nick and Gavito, along with a couple of people from Customs and the county sheriff's office working together. Together, they start gathering all the information about Mark they can possibly get. They hear about all the bars the boys visited in Matamoros, and they get a description of what Mark was wearing that night. A black, short-sleeved, buttoned-up shirt, light-colored pants with black, tan, and brown stripes, black loafers, a gray belt, and a gold chain and gold watch. They also arrange to get Jim, Mark's dad, to fax over a picture of Mark. It's the one we mentioned last episode, where he's smiling from ear to ear with his shaggy blonde hair. But beyond that, there's not much the boys can help law enforcement with right now. So they go back to South Padre Island while George Gavito and Oren Neck get to work. At first, Gavito and Neck don't read too much into this random missing college kid. They think he's in jail somewhere or still sleeping off the party. But then Gavito gets a phone call that forces him to take this seriously. His dad gave me a rundown of who Mark was. And just listening to the father and the mother on the phone on what, who Mark was, and, and his buddies also, just seeing the type of kids they were. You know, you could tell what type of kid Mark was. And, and I could see he wasn't the type of guy that he was not going to call his parents and, and just disappear with a woman or, or five, the five million things that we could think that would happen to him, you know, on his own, you know, be in jail, get drunk, you know, be with somebody, be doing drugs, all that. It didn't fit. So right, right there I started saying, you know, something happened here. This is where things get messy. Finding a missing person in a foreign country isn't easy or straightforward. They take the logical first step. They start calling hospitals and jails in the area. The American consulate does some searching too, but they're not much help. They say there aren't any Americans in jail anywhere in Mexico, which seems unlikely during spring break. The consulate also thinks Mark will show up soon, and they end up telling investigators to leave it to Mexican officials. So two law enforcement agents head into Matamoros to check again in person, expecting to see the cells full of students who got too drunk or too rowdy with Mexican police but they only find one American in jail, and he's from the University of Miami. And he's never heard of Mark Kilroy. Oren Neck himself decides to hit the streets near where Mark disappeared. He waves around a photo of Mark, asking people if they've seen him, but nothing. He knew it was a shot in the dark, but at this point, they have no solid leads on Mark. By Thursday morning, 48 hours after Mark was last seen, Jim Kilroy shows up in Brownsville, along with a friend who volunteered to help with the search. His wife, Helen, stayed behind in case anybody calls their house with information about Mark. Jim's worried and scared about what was happening. And according to the book Jim wrote with journalist Bob Stewart, Mark's friends are in for a rough morning. Mark's friend, Bill Huddleston, saw Mark talking to a stranger before he disappeared. So officials want to hypnotize him to get information. Someone from the Texas Department of Health and Human Services will put him in a trance-like state, which they hope will unlock full concentration and focus. In 1989, hypnosis was just another tool law enforcement officers used to help solve crimes. 
it was a pretty common practice all the way up until 2021 when Texas passed the law banning hypnosis in law enforcement settings. But on this Thursday morning in March 1989, investigators hoped to search Bill's subconscious for an image of what or who he saw the night Mark went missing. During the session, Bill described the exact location where Mark disappeared. In his trance, he saw someone talking to Mark that night, but he couldn't quite make out what the person looked like, so they couldn't make a sketch to release to the public. Investigators decided to do the next best thing. They put up a reward. $5,000 to anyone with information about what happened to Mark. While they wait and hope the reward money will bring someone forward, they look for more help on the other side of the border. It's a struggle getting the Mexican authorities to cooperate. Corruption runs rampant in the local police departments, but more than that, this is a bigger case for a small police department. So Gavito brings in the big guns, someone he knows and trusts. So the only one that was helping us was the Comandante. Gavito introduces Jim Kilroy to Juan Benitez Ayala, the commander of the Mexican Federal Judicial Police Department basically the law enforcement agency that takes on cases throughout all of Mexico. Comandante Benitez has a reputation for getting things done in Mexico. He's cleaned up a lot of the corruption in his department since he got into office, and he tells Jim, through a translator, that he'll help him find his son. By Friday morning, 72 hours after Marx disappeared, law enforcement knows they need a new plan of action. The Spring Breakers will leave town soon, and they need to know if someone saw something. Here's Gavito again. I said, okay guys, it's important that we hit the streets, and we get flyers, and we get this stuff on TV, and the whole thing. Because all these kids are not going to be here next week. And all, if we have any witnesses of any kind, we got we to gotta concentrate right now. And since Jim Kilroy's in town, he's the face investigators put in front of the cameras. You, you appeal more to the public when it's the parents that are, that are doing, you know, I do the interview, but, but it was the parents, you know, asking for help and everything. It, it was important. And not only was Jim more than happy to do it, he was determined to help in any way he could. He would bring me a cup of coffee in the morning and he would just stick around to see how he could help. Jim makes his TV debut on a local news channel in the Valley. Our Mars whereabouts are still unknown. My name is Letty Fernandez, and uh, I was a reporter at KGBT, the CBS affiliate in the Rio Grande Valley, covering the, the Mark Kilroy case. We had, um, the law enforcement people had told us, you know, that a student had been missing and they wanted us to get the story out. But really, the first story that was published about it was in the Brownsville Herald. And the, that reporter, Lisa Baker, had interviewed uh, several of the law enforcement people and Mr. Kilroy, Mark's dad. And then from that point on, we started covering the story, the TV reporters. And um, so from the onset, we were there. And uh, even the first time Mr. Kilroy came down to start searching for his son, we were covering the story. I was covering the story. 
Leti said she didn't cover the story just because it was a breaking news story. She wanted to help. So it was a sense of not only covering the story as a journalist, but, but also helping to get the word out and hopefully and hoping to find his son. And the, the first time I interviewed him, um, that was like the only time he had ever really broken down emotionally. And then after that, he was always very strong and very... Um, but he just, you know, it was just, it's a, it was just a, a, a parent wanting to find his son. So we just wanted to do what we could to help get that message out there. So. This would be the first of many times Jim Kerroy would appear on TV, pleading for answers in his son's disappearance. Letty would go on to interview him every day during the search for Mark. And at just one point, I think it was when he was talking about Mark, is when he, he broke down. And, and he had, I mean, it was very sad to see that because it was a, a, a father talking about his son and he was missing. And, and, uh, but, he, but after that, he never, he was just very strong and very, he would never, he didn't break down. Letty got to know Jim and Helen Kilroy pretty well throughout the search for their son, especially Jim. And the fact that their son was missing and missing in another country and, and, I mean, you felt his pain. You felt, you felt his pain, their pain. And, and I think a lot of, that's, a lot of people in the community felt that. As Letty's interviews with Jim air on the news each day, Brownsville residents began to join the search for Mark. That's that's kind of the way Brownsville is. You know, if we have a crisis, people come and people really do come out and and uh, show their support for people. And, and I think he, I know he felt that. And um, I, I know he did. A local school helps the family by printing flyers. Local church members form committees and prayer groups. Monsignor Nicolau's church leads the effort. Nicolau, we have to help. We have to get together, the whole community, verdad? Even though we did not know exactly what happened, I preached, verdad, that, verdad, we had to have faith. When Jim Kerroy shows up in Brownsville to look for Mark, he's feeling helpless. His son is still missing, and he's nearly 400 miles away from his wife, Helen. So he went to a place he knew he'd feel safe and at home. Church. As devoted Catholics, Jim and the Kilroys were the kind of family that go to church every Sunday. Helen was even a volunteer Sunday school teacher back in their hometown of Santa Fe, Texas. And they instilled those beliefs in their sons from a young age. Here's Ryan Fenley, Mark's friend, who pulled out of the spring break trip at the last minute to go snow skiing instead. And there was a time when his dad walked into Mark's room and he was reading the Bible. And he's thinking, well, he should be studying. He's got an exam coming up. What are you going to tell your son to not read the Bible? But that's the way Mark was. He, would, he, was, he was studious academically, but he also had strong faith. Everyone we interviewed for this podcast told us that the Kilroy's Christian faith was one of the first things they noticed about them. Here's Letty again. Like, I remember in, the, in my stories, I would talk about their faith and how 
important it was that that was keep. And I think even Mr. Curl, Kilroy talked about it in those interviews about believing, relying on his faith to help them get through this. And and I knew that they were uh, that he was he was going to mass a lot uh, at one of the churches there in town. Even Monsignor Nicolau, a priest with decades of experience in the church, was amazed by the Kilroy's faith in such stressful circumstances. I don't understand why they had so much faith. That was a miracle. The mother, the daddy, went to the mass every day, and and all that is, uh, to me, well, for the whole community, for the whole world, was was an example of faith. That was a testimony. They never lost hope. Never. As the community prays and passes out flyers, investigators are still searching for any information. They think there's a break in the case when they hear that two spring breakers had been injured, one in the same area where Mark was last seen. So the investigators do another sweep with the hospitals and jails for any sign of Mark, but still, nothing. The attacks weren't related. Investigators know the chances of finding Mark alive are getting grim. They start throwing around more theories. Maybe he had a brush with a corrupt law enforcement officer and was killed because of it. But it's unlikely. The area Mark was in was frequented by spring breakers, so it was somewhat of a safe zone for tourists like him. I talked to Oscar Casares, a novelist and essayist who writes primarily about the U.S.-Mexico border, specifically South Texas and the Rio Grande Valley. Oscar referred to the area where Mark disappeared as a, quote, green zone. It's kind of like arriving at the embassy. You know, you're you're in the green zone. Uh, if if uh, something happens there, you know, I mean, it, it, you're just toast because it shouldn't. I mean, it, it shouldn't happen there. Oscar's talking about Garcia's, one of the most legendary restaurants in Matamoros. It's right by the bridge to Brownsville, and it's right near where Mark went missing. Oscar grew up crossing over the border from Brownsville to Matamoros and says in the years before Mark's disappearance, he never thought twice about it being dangerous. You had been going there for years and and didn't think anything of it. And then suddenly, like, this happens, right? So even the folks frequenting Matamoros at this time couldn't be sure what the possibilities were. Investigators decide to start searching through all the places they think a body might be buried. And the search turns from a missing persons investigation to a homicide investigation. On Saturday, four days after Marks disappeared, authorities decide to search the Rio Grande River. The river separates Mexico and the United States. More than 50 agents and a Border Patrol helicopter look through the brush on either side of the Rio Grande. The water's not too deep and it's muddy but it would be easy to spot something floating in the water. Jim Kilroy joins in the search, peering through the murky water for his son's body. Here's what Jim said about the moment in his book. So I prayed. I prayed to find him. I prayed to not find him. I prayed that if he was found, it would be someone else. And finally, I prayed that we would not find him here, but that I would be reunited with him. They return to the river on Sunday, day five of the search, and find nothing. So they go back to passing out flyers. 
Mark's face smiles out from the posters in black and white. Monica Rodriguez Davis remembers those flyers. Uh, my name is Monica uh, Rodriguez Davis. And um, while they were searching for Mark, his family, his father and his son and his mother at one point um, stayed with us. Uh, we opened our home to them while they were searching for their son. In 1989, Monica was 17 years old, a junior in high school when Mark Kilroy disappeared. Remember my dad, or my family used to go to St. Luke's Church in Brownsville at the time. And um, when the story broke, I think it hit the newspaper. It might have been on the news once or twice. I don't, I don't know. But my father became aware of it, and um, he recognized Mr. Kilroy at Mass one morning. And um, he approached him and told him that he was aware of the situation and what was going on with his son and how he was missing. And he just told him, you know, you have a home here until you, you know, until you, you know, find him. Jim Kilroy met Monica's father, Joe Rodriguez, at church. Joe, or more affectionately known as Coach Joe in the community, is the kind of man who would help anyone in a situation like this. But as we've established, that's pretty common down here. My father had always felt that if I can help, I'm going to help, and I'm going to help in any way I can, whether, you know, he's just going to do it. And he was always that type of person. And I think he was um, a really good person to be involved in this just because he wasn't afraid to go up to people and um, start a conversation. Over the next month, Monica's house turns into what was known as the war room. In law terms, they call it the war room, you know, where they have everything there so they can prepare for the case or the trial. It almost felt like a war room in that little table that we had. Monica's kitchen table would become the place where law enforcement agents such as George Gavito and Nordneck would have meetings. Monica's used to her house being busy. After all, she said having people over for barbacoa tacos and a big red on Sundays was normal for her Mexican family, as it is in mine, but this felt different. This was serious. Throughout the first two weeks of the search, the Kilroys and the Brownsville community stay in a constant loop of press interviews, prayers, and passing out flyers. The community's efforts work. The case captures the attention of producers for the show America's Most Wanted, who agree to do a segment on Mark's disappearance. America's Most Wanted, a national TV show aimed at finding missing persons and fugitives, dedicated a five-minute segment of the show to the search for 21-year-old Mark Kilroy, a UT pre-med student who disappeared during a spring break trip to Mexico. The producers bring in the three friends who were with Mark the night he disappeared to go to Matamoros and reenact the night exactly as it happened. They even hire an actor to portray Mark. Here's a clip of Bill, the last friend to see Mark before he disappeared. Buddy, I happened to take a quick glimpse to the right, and I saw some man motioning to Mark. Uh, that was the last time I'd seen Mark. The show airs on Easter Sunday. It features yet another plea from Mark's parents, desperate to find their son. Here's his mom, Helen. And if anyone has seen anything that comes to their mind, please call us and let us know. Going into week three of the search, the America's Most Wanted broadcast gives the case the attention it needs. 
people helping with the search back in the Kilroy's hometown of Santa Fe hang yellow ribbons to raise awareness. They plan a week full of, quote, Mark Kilroy Awareness Days. Law enforcement in the Valley reach out to their connections in the Mexican Mafia to see if anyone knows anything. They assign registered nurses to go to every single hospital in the city to search for Mark. The Kilroys meet with state representatives and the governor's office, as well as Texas Attorney General Jim Maddox, who sends one of his aides to Matamoros to investigate. The hotshot mayor of San Antonio, Henry Cisneros, even goes to Matamoros to meet with Mexican authorities. But despite the firepower behind the search, authorities still don't have any leads, which is honestly fairly normal in a missing persons case like this. Things move slowly. But Jim and Helen Kilroy still have hope. We're holding up well, but it's a matter of uh, what can you do, you know, how, how much can you do, and you start to run out of things that you can do to try to find Mark. That's the hardest thing, is just not knowing what's happened to Mark. You know, I mean, it would be hard to be at any kind of rest, you know, and, and not to keep trying to find out what has has happened to Mark because um, I still feel that he's, you know, he's being held somewhere and, um, you know, we have to find him. March turns into April. It's been nearly a month since Mark disappeared. Some tips trickle in, but they're mostly useless. Probably people looking for a shot at the reward money, which has increased to $15,000 after some fundraising in Brownsville. One promising lead pops up when Helen gets a phone call at the Kilroy Santa Fe home from someone who knows where Mark is. She even tries to meet up with this person multiple times with the reward money, but no one ever shows up. Nothing else happens until that April morning when the college student Serafina Hernandez blows past a police checkpoint, thinking the police can't see him. Here's George Cavito again. They had a roadblock set up. They were checking people going through, and, and he didn't stop at the roadblock. He just kept going. Went right through it. I mentioned earlier that Serafine was one of many students who crossed over to Matamoros regularly, and that Serafine's family were known drug dealers in the area. They've got a multi-million dollar marijuana operation, and dozens of Serafine's relatives work in the family business. One of them was just famously involved in a fatal shootout with Mexican authorities at a Matamoros bar. So they're known by law enforcement. They've got this ranch. You're already familiar with it. I told you about Rancho Santa Elena in episode one. It's the place where all those bodies are buried, but authorities don't know that yet. They just think they've caught a member of a notorious drug family with a bit of marijuana on him so they can search the ranch. So these guys chased him, and he went into the ranch. About a mile up, ran into the ranch, drove all the way into the ranch, and, uh, well, the commandant and all these guys were right behind him. They round up and take in everyone they find there, including the elderly caretaker. They find some marijuana there at the ranch. So they get the marijuana, they, and they, they have a caretaker that takes care of the ranch, an indio. You know, the poor guy just feeds the goats and everything, but they, they picked him up, too and they brought them both to the office. The caretaker is the only one who isn't arrested, but they question him anyway. 
So I said, you know what? We're going to keep you here under house arrest. You're going to stay here in the office. Let's make sure you're not involved or everything. And if you're not in the next couple of days, we let you go. So he spends the next couple of nights in the commandante's office. He's cleaning up, looking around, even sleeping on the sofa, before the caretaker sees someone he recognizes. Uh, he saw a picture and he said, hey, yo lo conozco. He just told the guard he knows him. The guard who's watching the caretaker is surprised. You know him? See? How do you know him? They had him at the ranch. They had him in a suburban. They had him tied up. This, are you sure? Yes. Because I would give him water and I would give him bread. They had him there for two days, tied up in a suburban. Are you sure it was him? Yes. And what happened to him? I don't know. They all came and then he was in the suburban. They told me to go do some stuff and then, you know, what they did to him or whatever, I don't know. The caretaker has just pointed at a picture of Mark Carroy. Next, on season three of Darkness. You know, there's about 20 more bodies right here. What do you mean 20 more bodies? See, there's one here, and he walked us through, and there's one there, and there's one there, and, and oh shit. They were all sacrificed. Uh, a couple were shot. Uh, some of them were hit in the back of the head with machetes and uh, sledgehammers. This season of Darkness is reported, hosted, and produced by me, Jackie Barra. Katie Penchik-Alka and Robert Quickly are the executive producers. This podcast is presented by The Drag a student-run audio production house at the University of Texas at Austin's Moody College of Communication. Sewa Olivares is the lead sound designer and editor for the season of Darkness, and the assistant editor is Heather Stewart. Special thanks to Marian Navarro for being the lead reporter on this story when this project first began. The associate producers are Emily Rubin, Megan Kirby, Jake Herman, Khadija Balde, Bethany Stork, and Miranda Vilches. The artwork was designed by Helen Holsey and Alexa Georgilos. Sofia Vargas-Garam is the Drag's Marketing and Communications Manager, and Grace Robertson is the Drag's PR Manager. Christian McDonald is our Technical Director. Special thanks to Bob Buckaloo at KVU-TV in Austin for all his time and effort finding archival footage for us to use in these episodes. And thanks to KVU for letting us use the audio. A huge thank you to Leslie Schrock for all her support and guidance. We also want to thank Jay Bernhardt, David Reif, Rachel Davis-Mercy, Allison Dawson, and Kathleen Mabley of the Moody College of Communication. The DRAG is a nonprofit educational organization that is made possible by donors like you. Please support our work by going to thedragaudio.com donate. Every dollar goes directly to producing more content like this while giving students like me an amazing educational experience. Thank you.